Welcome to the Geek to Geek podcast, where you're a wizard, Beige. Oh, <laughs> I'm Void, and I'm here with my co-host, Beige. I'm a wizard, apparently. Yay! You are. Today, we're going to talk about uh, Harry Potter, kind of like the extended Harry Potter universe in general. Um, we know Fantastic right. Beasts is coming out, and... I think generally we're a little bit excited about it, but not super excited. We probably won't do a full episode on it is what I'm trying to get at here. But we do like Harry Potter and we have thoughts about Harry Potter. So we wanted to talk about it since it was kind of relevant to the movie coming out. And I'm not that excited about the movie, but I absolutely love Harry Potter. That it's been something since the very first movie came out that I've just held very dear. So I am moderately hopeful for the movie so we'll see how that goes but i love harry potter like just love 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 it yeah and so i i loved the books as a kid like the first time i read through them i was a kid and then a teenager um they came out as i was a teen towards the end of them okay yeah and um, because you're a little bit older than me, but not that much older. Um, But so I just re-listened to them for the first time as an adult. I didn't reread them, but I, I had them all as audiobooks, and I hadn't ever actually like sat down and listened to them as audiobooks. Yeah, I hadn't either. I've heard wonderful things about the audiobooks. Yeah, they're good. So I I just got done reading, or not reading, listening to the audiobook version of them, and I listened to all of them basically. And then I went back after that, and I started trying to watch the movies, but the movies are a little bit rough (laughs) like especially the early movies in it um yeah those first ones are just like they're not easy to watch these days they're not we went back and watched the very first one not long ago and it was very painfully obvious it was a product of its time that it it was very much and you know i watched it when i was 18 and it made me go back and read the one through four that was that were out at that point and i loved it then and it was fairly hard to watch now yeah, so like going back and trying to watch the movies, it feels like the movies are like chunks of the book brought to life, but a lot of the movies yeah. aren't actually adapted to movies. Like, you know what I mean? They didn't do yeah. the next step or two where you have to take your source material and actually adapt it to make it live on its own in a movie. So if you've read the books and you've seen the movies, it feels cool to see these things that you know about. But if you are coming to the movies cold and you've never read the books, it would be so confusing in a bunch of different ways. There are things that are never explained or never never like circled back to or things that are just left dangling. Do, have you noticed that? Yeah, yeah, there really are. And it's almost like they have the skeleton of the story that goes through where they're hitting all of the high points. And it tells a story, but it doesn't necessarily tell the same story because there are so many things that, you know, you have to leave things out for an adaptation. There's no way that you can't. There's no way you can include everything when you're adapting for the screen. But it was as though they left out so many character moments just to make sure that they included every plot point they needed to that I actually liked the first half of Deathly Hallows a lot where everyone else in the world hated it. Jennifer and I absolutely love it because it's time we get to spend with the characters we love as opposed to just, you know, paint by numbers, getting getting that story done. They're all so long, too, that it's yes. amazing they don't have more character moments because almost everyone, maybe everyone is over two hours. A lot of them are like two and a half hours. Like, they are just 
epic in length for they the are. movies. And it's crazy that we don't get more into like the minutiae and like the, the character development. It's more like plot point after plot point after plot point. And I, I do think that the last three movies are a lot better because like I said, I tried to watch the first couple and I just gave them up as a lost cause. Um, I, I liked yeah. them at the time they came out, but I can't rewatch them. And then I moved on and I, the one that I finally watched all the way through was four. So I watched four, five, six, oh. seven, and eight. And I actually like four. Um, I know some people have mixed feelings about it, but I like Goblet of Fire and I like that book too. Um, do you like that I one? Like, I liked it okay the first time I saw the movie. You know, the first few times I saw the movie that I thought it was very good. It's kind of painful to go back because that entire book now, even on rereading them the last time I did, they it felt just plodding to me. Way more than almost any of the others. It was as though she needed to extend it for some unknown reason. And it's a transition book between the kids book of one to three and the more mature subject matter in four in five six and seven but as a transition book and even as a transition movie it felt as though it wasn't quite balanced in terms of how it was bridging those two tones so for me reading it i skipped a lot of it rereading it honestly and then the movie it just didn't feel as though i was invested in it there was nothing really going on there was never really to me any kind of danger or interesting motivation for the characters with it just being the contest that was not engaging to me as an audience member but I love five, six, and seven, both as movies and as books. And number three with The Prisoner of Azkaban, I really, really, really like going back and watching it now because I love Alfonso Cuaron. He is a fantastic director. And I think that despite all of the, you know, lack of exposition and kind of disjointed nature of that movie, I think it is one of the most technically great movies in the series because of how he directed it by putting things together even though he left out a lot that's interesting maybe i should give three another shot because i had tried one and two and i was so frustrated and i knew i liked four so i just skipped over three entirely but i've heard some other people say that three is really good on its own it is because it's so different from the others because you have chris columbus who did one and two and they are pretty much these straight adaptations as much as you can of books one and two they feel like books one and two and book and the third movie and book three both in the same way they feel the same that you have this same tone and atmosphere that that he was able to capture but it is a completely different style of movie because as a director he hates exposition that that's one thing he absolutely despises as a creator is having the any kind of explanatory dialogue that where they're like you know and the patronus is the blah bitty blah bitty blah so everyone should know this and remember last time when you know when moaning myrtle was doing this in the chamber of secrets yada 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 he doesn't do anything like that so it felt as though it was kind of disjointed when you're coming from the chris columbus movies that were those kind of paint by numbers you know adaptations to get it exactly onto the screen and he did a full adaptation to it but it it felt disjointed for people because he didn't necessarily tie everything together with that narrative like the first two did. 
did. Yeah, yeah, I'll have to go back and re-watch that one because that sounds interesting. But I think you hit on something um, a little bit earlier when you were saying, like, one in three feel like kids books and movies yes um and then five through seven feel like kind of young adult books and movies and then four is that transition from one to another so if you like what that one ended up being which i do i i ended up i like that book a lot with the competition and stuff i find it interesting but um i know other people don't because it it kind of has a tone that's separate from all of the other ones in the Mm -hmm. whole series going back and the one that i actually struggled with to get through and i was just listening like i wasn't even actively reading you know i was doing other things while i was listening to these the one i struggled with was book five the order of the phoenix because really yeah it after okay the first time i read it i liked it a lot but going back to it the second time all it is is There's only like one mystery in it, whereas almost all the other books have different mysteries and different magical items layered on top of each other and interlinked in interesting ways. I could see that. So they're putting together a bunch of different things that tie in towards the end of the book or the greater narrative, right? Five doesn't really have that. Five has one mystery and it's the same thing and it repeats over and over for the entire book. And it's just about being in the Department of Mysteries and Harry seeing through Voldemort's eyes. And that's that's like the only thing and it's a mystery the first time you read through it but then the second time you come back to it you know exactly what's happening so there's no it's it's not interesting to hear the same thing over and over the other thing is that that's the one where the entire time harry is just an angsty teenager and it just oh my goodness i know because i i don't really know why that tone feels so different because like six and seven books and then you know six seven eight for movies they are all darker too in tone but i'm fine with them because they're not like teenage angsty whiny dark they're just dark because there's an evil lord taking over the world right whereas five is just kind of this like teenager complaininess which is really really annoying absolutely he he's just being a little whiny baby through a lot of it and one of my it's Book five, when he goes on a date with Cho, is probably my least favorite scene in the entire series because I've never yelled at a book character before. That when he goes on that date, the way that he treats her, I was I was in college at this point and I just yelled at him for what he was doing to her. And I really like uh, book six, that book six and movie of six are completely different in tone. And a lot of people complained about this, that they were so different that they left out so much out of the movie from book six. But as Jennifer and I have talked about it, we realized why that book six as a book six is very dark. It's leading up to the final book. It has to be this kind of penultimate, just just dark kind of stepping stone into the final battle. And with two more movies coming out, they knew that they were splitting book seven at this point. They had to have a lighthearted movie. They had they had zero chance in Deathly Hallows to really be lighthearted. So they took all of the fun parts out of book six and really made it kind of this romantic comedy as you watch the movie, where you have, you know, Harry getting Harry getting day drunk, essentially. And uh when he's on, I can't remember the name of the potion, but he's got pincers. He's like, so 
yeah, the Felix Felicis where he's he acts like not like he does in the book, but it works for the screen and just everything where they're talking about Dragon Balls and all of this stuff that they're eating at the party. And it's funny where there's not a lot of room for that. So they had a very serious book. They had a very serious end of movie four. They had a very serious book uh, movie five with Order of the Phoenix. And then you have Deathly Hallows, which is mega dark. And so if you're for looking for a, a family series, you have to have some sort of levity. So that's where books, that's where movie six came in. It doesn't necessarily line up with the tone of book six, but it stands on its own and makes the movie series flow a little bit better by having that kind of levity in it. Yeah, I actually think that Half-Blood Prince is my favorite book and my favorite movie, too, out of all of them, having just revisited it, right? Um, I wouldn't have said that the first time through, but now going back through as an adult, uh, I really lean that way. And the other thing that I noticed more now, because I've never really marathoned any of the Harry Potter movies before this. Okay, um, yeah. Six, so I'm talking movies now. The, I mean, the story of the books, they all flow pretty well into each other. The movies feel a little bit more disjointed. But yeah. um, Half-Blood Prince and then Deathly Hollows Part 1 and Deathly Hollows Part 2, they make one cohesive story, especially in the movies. Yes, they do. So it's almost like rewatching Lord of the Rings, where when you watch that first one, you're committed and you need to watch all the way through to get the whole story. I, I was just amazed by how well... Half-Blood Prince flows into both Deathly Hollows movies, and they kind of expect uh, you to yeah. know everything. Um, and I didn't know that at the time because I watched them as they came out, so it was like a year between every one. But watching them three nights in a row, it became evident that that those last three movies are one complete story, and it feels so much better to watch them together. I could see that. I've never watched them together. I've never done that kind of marathon of the final three, mainly because they're so long. You had mentioned earlier that they're very long, and that's that's kept me from doing it. Yeah, I can. I, I get that. They are all really long, which is why once I started to not like those first couple movies that I watched, I was like, no, nah, yeah. I'm not going to sit here for two and a half hours watching this one. I'm going to move on. But I want to know what you think about three, though. Go back and watch it, okay. because I've liked going back and watching it, and I really want to know your take on that and i really liked re-listening to them all i'm sure i would re i would like rereading them all also mm -hmm. but i mean i just did the yeah, audible this time um like i said five was a little bit of a struggle because it's like the longest book and it's also the most angsty book but besides that i mean even that i got through and it was fine and i enjoyed it i like it as a book series a lot and then as a movie series it's just kind of interesting to see it come to life but it's not necessarily like a great movie series so i don't want to sound like i'm negative on harry potter because i'm not i love the universe and i like the book series as one through seven books just reading through or listening through anything like that and i'm the same way i loved rereading the books and it's been years since i actually reread them all that i did one right i did my last reread of the entire series just before Deathly Hallows Part 2 came out, that I finished Deathly Hallows on the day that Deathly Hallows 2 released. Oh, that's interesting. That's cool. So I, I made sure to have the entire series under my belt going in at the very, very end. So I wanted to know, what do you think of like the extended universe, for lack of a better term? I don't know if it has an actual term, like Star Wars had like the expanded universe. But um, yeah. you know, Harry Potter extended universe, so right around the time the books came out or maybe in the middle of the books there were a couple that were like fantastic beasts and um quidditch that were more like they were little yeah. mini 
like novellas that were just almost reference books for topics within like the universe i didn't like those at all i thought they were very boring and i never like i read them once and i was like oh i felt like i kind of wasted my time but did you like those at all uh i've got them i've paged through them and never read them that it was just something i picked up on sale that that they were there they're interesting and i liked having the idea of some hogwarts I liked having Hogwarts textbooks, I guess, because I'm such a nerd. But that's that's the extent of what I like about those, really. They're they're kind of non-entities for me. See, I think I would have liked them if they were actually like Hogwarts textbooks. Like, if it was mm. a full textbook that was textbook size that you're used to when you go to, like, high school or college. Yeah, and it I actually, can see that, yeah. It actually had super in-depth information about the entire world. Like, give me a textbook that's the history of magic that the kids are reading in their classes to learn about it. I would probably like that. But those, That's true. I would love that. Like, those books aren't that they are taking that idea and then making it like not even young adult but almost like kid book kids you know yeah, almost like chapter books yeah yeah like chapter books like my my daughter is six and so we're reading chapter books that are more in depth than those side things from harry potter yeah. back then okay so there's also like three short story collections that were released that was only like two or three months ago. I just read mm-hmm. them right when they came out. Did you check those out at all? No, I purposefully avoided them and all of the short stories that have come out on Pottermore. Okay, I've read the short stories on Pottermore also. So we differ here. I really like yes. them and I'm taking it by your tone that you don't. I don't like the idea of an expanded universe for Harry Potter. I'm. It's not as though... And I haven't read Cursed Child, but the only reason I haven't read Cursed Child is just not taking the time. I fully intend to read it. Um, But for the extended universe, all of these short stories, the American setting for Fantastic Beasts, I'm just... I'm just put off by it. That part of the charm for me with Harry Potter has been that this is what it is. That here is this series, here are these books, here are these characters, and this is the story that was being told. And having it final, having it finalized, and, you know, even with Cursed Child, that there is an end to this, that this is where these characters that we like, this is where the story took them, and it's where Cursed Child is almost like an epilogue that 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 works from what I I've heard it's I'm I'm okay with that but the expanded universe the the filling out the diegetical background for all of the different schools where you're filling out this this American prequel really and where these ideas come from I'm just it loses some of its charm it's almost like the it's trying to be Star Wars it's trying to be the MCU and and while I trust Joe Rowling, I really do. She is a fantastically creative person and a wonderful human being. It's just, it loses its charm. Uh, what people have said about Star Wars, of being inundated with Star Wars stuff, is, you know, makes them not care so much about how, because there's so much of it out there that, you know, we're going to get tired of Star Wars. But that's what Star Wars has always been. There's always been merchandise, there's always been all of this around, and it's been a property more than. Than it has been a narrative in a lot of ways that Harry Potter is a meaningful narrative that hits on a lot of cultural issues, a lot of personal issues. And by, by bringing this expanded universe in, it feels as though it's diluting that to me that I don't, care because i've got the meaningful narrative that all of this other stuff is just like 
I don't like her answering all of these questions outside and explaining all of this stuff. Or, oh, I should have done this, that this is what really happened. And it's just like, in that way, I'm kind of a new critic when it comes to that with literary criticism of what is in the text is in the text. And whatever you felt as though should be there is whatever should be there is whatever is there has been influenced by what you have told us now, but you should let us see it in the text rather than explaining it and constantly bringing this new narrative forward. I just, I don't like it. <laughs> okay. Um, you, <laughs> th- those were a lot of statements. I disagree with a lot of what you just said. Um, I can, oh, I'm s- sure a lot of people do. I can see if you don't like her little like additions to the main story, right? Her right. in interviews trying to clarify, or no, this was this that way, or this was that way. You just didn't see it. Um, that that I get that. That's kind of like eh, she's retroactively like she's retrofitting her own story yeah, she's to make it better. A lot of this and stuff that that bugs me a little. But everything else you said, um, I, I think that the short stories they are like little vignettes into the world. The, these are the ones that came out a few months ago, and I'm right. blanking on the titles yeah. of them because obviously they weren't memorable enough but um they were like little vignettes on characters that we already know like almost um a minor like biography of some of the mm-hmm. main characters that aren't not the main characters but like side characters so yeah, like, like rita skeeter and things like yeah, that or right? like lupin or like umbridge things like that 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 flesh out them as characters and then it's also all these little vignettes of more about certain schools of magic and how they function yeah. So there's a short story that's all about um, animag, animagi, animagises, yeah. whatever the plural of it is, animagi, I think, um, and how you actually become an animagus and magic. Oh, man, I'm going to pronounce it differently every <laughs> single time. How you actually yep. become that and, like, the steps involved. And I thought that was super fascinating. Um, so those, I feel like they're just adding little tiny bits to the world, little bits of flavor, and they're not actually impacting that narrative that you like so much, which is why right. I'm fine with them. The American setting, no, I'll come back to that. Let me talk about Cursed Child first. <laughs> right. Cursed Child, you said it works, but you haven't actually read it, right? I haven't read it. I've, I okay. know a bit about it. I don't have the spoilers part of it, but from what I do know about it, it 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 sounds as though that's the way it's going to be for me. I can't speak, you know, that's what it what it is. Okay, so I have read Cursed Child, and I don't like it as a story. I don't okay. think it's a good fit for the Harry Potter story. I don't think it needed an eighth story that brought in a new generation and then revisited thoughts that were really wrapped up well by the end of okay. book seven. And this feels like, and I talked about this when I read it in one of our weekly geekeries, it feels like fan fiction. It feels like yeah. really highly polished, well-produced fan fiction, but it feels like fan fiction. It doesn't feel like it fits into the world and the first when i read it right when i went through it it was fine and i enjoyed my time with it and it was like a fun roller coaster ride right and then as soon as i stopped reading it when i finished that book or play it's a play script but it's you know out there in book form as soon as i finished it and i started thinking about it it just started falling apart like everything about it that was holding the narrative together doesn't actually work because there are so many like i'm trying to say this without spoiling it for you because you haven't read it yet but 
I know you can nitpick a lot of parts of Harry Potter. This is like all of the worst things together. <laughs> it was like, why don't we bring in as many things as possible to this eighth story? Like, hey, yeah. you remember Harry Potter? Hey, remember this thing from Harry Potter? Hey, remember that other thing? I've heard that whereas, from a lot of people. Yeah, whereas in the books, there's usually like one new main magical something that ties into the story. This yeah. is like, let's take five or six of them and bring them all back. Hey, do you remember this thing? Hey, let's prey on your nostalgia some more. And it's... It's just frustrating that it falls apart after you actually stop and think about it. So I don't like the story of Cursed Child. I bet it would be fantastic to go watch it as a play. Oh, I'm sure. That's the way it's written, right? It's written as a play, but it was put out there as a book so they can make more money off of it. And I think there's also like I think that's a misstep. Oh, I, I think part of it is also, you know, it's only in London right now. So for Harry Potter to be so big, they would have to publish the script to be able to get it out there, to let people at least experience that story. That if it had just been a play in London, that there would there would have been a massive outcry of people and fans who wanted to at least know what was going on. And there would have been so many bootlegs at that point that it was a way of protecting themselves more than anything else. Yeah, it's just there's a magic to theater, you know, the actual production that transforms it from a script into a play. And without having that in front of you, it just Uh does not hold up. With that that said, if The Cursed Child ever comes to a city near me, I am going to go watch it because I bet it would be amazing as a play. Like, oh, I, I, I don't have any doubt that... If that is done the right way with production, which, of course, it's going to be because it's Harry Potter and it has a ton of money behind it, it would just be a fantastic experience. And from everything I've read, that the technology that they came up with to do a lot of the the just spectacle of the play is they've advanced theater technology to be able to show this stuff on stage without special effects. That these special effects for theater have been advanced technologically for it. And for me... I really, really... This is the English teacher talking. This is the English teacher and theater guy uh, talking about this, is whenever I'm teaching or whenever I was teaching drama, I would tell people not to read the play. I would tell people, if it is at all possible, go on the internet, find a YouTube video, find a production of this, and watch it. That it's not going to be exactly like it is in your anthology, but you're going to get 10 times out of it what you would if you sat and read it. Because if you're not trained to read scripts, if you haven't spent years and years and years of reading dramatic scripts, then you're not going to be able to fully realize and fully appreciate what's on the page. Because like you said, it's written for the stage, not for reading, that unless you have that kind of ability, you're going to miss a lot of the nuance. So I would always tell my students to go find a production online and watch something. That That's something that happens very very often is that people are look at scripts as being books and if you're reading it from that perspective you have to be disappointed i know you're not and i know you understand this but a lot of people who i've heard complain about this like oh it's a script not a book why would they do this to us and i'm like 
that's what it is. That's what it was written for. If you watch this, it's a completely different experience. So yeah. you can't judge it wholly on the script. You can judge the script, but don't judge the project on just that script. Right, because the production and the performance is always transformative. And I know yes. that because I worked in video professionally for right. a long time. Like, it's the same thing. You write scripts, right? You edit scripts. But then when you actually go to do it, it's a completely different thing. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, even if, if any of you... Are, have like watched Shakespeare versus read Shakespeare. I hate reading Shakespeare. It is so boring to me. But if a Shakespeare play ever comes to town and it's put on with a good production and like a good cast, it can't be a bad, it can't even be a mediocre cast for Shakespeare. No, it has to be a good cast. It has to be a good cast. Um, When Shakespeare comes to town and it's good, I love going and seeing it because it's, it's really good, but the performance is what does it. It's not the words on the page, you know? Yeah, I mean, Shakespeare wrote it to be performed. He never expected any of this stuff to be collected and put down. So everything that you read, whether it's a quarto version, whether it's a folio version, anything that's been collected and archived, they, you know, they were put together. A lot of these versions were put together from the scripts that he gave his players. So they were, you're, you're getting so many different versions because you have so many different versions of the script out there that were being performed. Yeah. So he didn't care about it being written down because that who read scripts in the in the early 1600s? Who did that? Nobody. You went to watch <laughs> these plays so they would be on garbage paper, they would be these ripped up, crinkled up basically, uh, you know, just just taking a written on napkins essentially for the most part. I mean, they're they're put together and in, in very very cheap forms because that was what you had had to work with and of course they're not written to be written to be read at that point so if you can see Shakespeare uh, performed it it's it is transformative it is brilliant and some of the best playing that you can watch but if you read it I can't read Hamlet. I've been an English teacher uh, for for the last decade and been in uh, school for the last fifteen years for English. I can't sit and read a Shakespeare play. I want to. I just want to start breaking my own arms and bashing my head <laughs> against the wall because it's terrible. But if I watch something, I watch Macbeth. I watch The Merchant of Venice. I uh, I am all in. I'm right there. Yeah, one of the worst plays my wife and I ever went and saw was. Um, a cast performing Romeo and Juliet really, really oh. badly. And then yeah. one of like my favorite play that I've ever seen was um, a really good cast with a really good production putting on two gentlemen of Verona. And it's mm. because um, if you guys don't know, you can take Shakespeare and you can put it into any time period and it just works. Yep. You just have to adapt it slightly. You don't have to change the words. You just change the set dressing and the way the actors like sell it. And it just works. And it's kind of amazing like that. So there was a two gentlemen of Verona and it took place right around the time that like um, television cameras became a thing. Oh, so they actually had awesome. cameras from like, I, I want to say like the 50s ish. Um, and they were like recording the people on the stage and then projecting it up onto a projector with these like ye oldie cameras that actually were working cameras. It oh, was that's awesome. It was amazing. It was the best play I've ever seen. And I, I can't do it justice with words, but it was fantastic. But yeah, so performance is transformative we kind of went on a shakespeare tangent which was very unexpected i did want to get back to something about harry potter though 
But that's the same, but that's the exact same thing of looking at, at the cursed child is that you read this stuff and you can think about how it should be performed. Like I know there's one point where there's a bookcase that eats someone like that's, that's all I know about that scene. And you can see it from the perspective when you're reading the script of what it would look like in a movie, because that's what we have the visual basis for or what it would be in our mind of looking like this. I see things in cartoons a lot whenever I'm reading and I see these kinds of, of just situations. But when you see it on stage done, it is so completely different than what you could have imagined that like those cameras in, in the two gentlemen of Verona, it's so different than anything that you've seen that it, that the media, the medium is perfect for it. And so I have to hold judgment on even when I read Cursed Child until I can see it on stage. And that's the same thing with Hamilton when we did it. Like, I might have procured a copy of it and still intend to give them all my money for that just to see what the staging was like. And seeing the clips and videos of it from, like, the PBS documentary changes how you interpret those songs for sure for sure um i did want to get back to another thing that i completely disagree with you about if Mm. that's okay um of course so you it sounds like you've rejected the american harry potter setting out of hand and i think you're doing a disservice there because maybe i i agree with like um I, I see what you're saying when you're talking about these things that add on to the existing narrative we know and the existing narrative we know is in England and Scotland for wherever Hogwarts actually technically is. And it's around Hogwarts and it's around Harry Potter. And Harry Potter is kind of only an interesting character because we are seeing everything from his point of view. If you oh, look yeah, at Harry him from the terrible. outside, yeah, if you look at him from the outside, he's not actually that interesting of a person. He just happens to be linked to the main story in a critical I've way. I've wanted Harry Potter to die since the second book, and I got so mad in book seven when she brought him back to life. I was so happy when he died. When he came back to life, I closed my book and went down and made a sandwich because I was so angry. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, that's the Harry Potter narrative. But the thing is, in creating the Harry Potter narrative, J.K. Rowling made an interesting world, right? And what she's done with a couple stories on Pottermore is taken the interesting parts of the world, transplanted them to America so they don't have to be connected to Harry Potter at all in any way whatsoever, and then twisted them to make it their own setting. And so she has this setting in America, which is the school in America, I think it's called Ivelmorny or something like that. I have to re- yeah, look I've it seen up again. The word. And the school setup there is like a twisted version of Hogwarts in a very interesting way. She's established enough of it that there's this like fertile setting to tell stories in that doesn't have to intersect with the narrative we already know. So I know with Fantastic Beasts, which we'll start getting into here in a second, we're going back to pre Harry Potter america right we're going back to it looks like the 20s basically i would love to see like an american narrative in modern day in the american schools because then you don't have to worry about the fallout from harry potter because all that's happening over in england right like if yeah that was happening in 90s in the england in england in the 90s if you try to set anything in england or even europe you have to have it acknowledge harry potter in some way because there would be intricately linked because not enough time has passed if you go and you take what she's established in america instead 
and you build a new narrative over there, you can kind of do whatever you want with it. And I bet there are ways to do this in other parts of the world, too. You just have to get away from Europe because so much of the Harry Potter narrative is so right. intricately linked with different parts of Europe that there's no way around it, which is why I'm sure you feel like you do. But you haven't actually read the stuff about America, right? Right. No, I haven't. I've seen synopses and things like that. And I guess part of it for me is that I don't care about it in America, that there's not been anything to make me care about the American side, and that the world itself has never felt real to me. I guess the the way that she had presented all of the this secret magical world never felt fully fleshed out to me. That, I don't know, it, it's... I love the stories and I love the stories because of the characters, not because of the world, which is the opposite of what it is for Star Wars with me, that I love that world and pretty much anything that they're going to do with it. And I haven't cared about the Harry Potter world like ever. Okay, no, that's that's totally a valid point of view. Um, we should probably tie that into like, what are we kind of expecting from Fantastic Beasts? Because yeah. for, for me, um, I hope it's fun. But I don't have a whole lot of expectations because the existing Harry Potter movies haven't been fantastic. I mean, they're good to see everything that we love come to life. But on their own as movies, like we already talked about, they're not fantastic, right? Yeah. Um, the thing I'm hopeful for with Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, which is out very soon, if not out by the time. I actually don't know when it releases. It might be out before this podcast comes out. I think out. it's this weekend as we're recording it, actually. Okay. It's very, very soon. Um, It's the first Harry Potter like universe movie that's actually written for the screen first so yes. it should make a better movie than any of the movies we have so far if it doesn't that's a horrible sign but it, it yes. should because it's written for the screen before it's written for anything else and that's one of the biggest pushes for me to give it a real chance because i'm not excited about this one i'm gonna go see it this weekend i have a friend who's really super mega excited like harry potter is his star wars like it is for me and i'm i'm excited to see him so excited about it and i i'm 100 on board with you on that because it was written specifically for the screen that it's written as a screenplay first that will make a huge difference in how the characters are presented, how the narrative is presented, that if they can do something with these people that, that are as engaging as the, the book characters were for Harry Potter. Yeah, and I, I hope so. But the thing that does worry me is that I thought this was standalone, and then I found out mm -hmm. it was going to be a trilogy. And then just like mm -hmm. a month or two ago, they came out and said, actually, this is going to be a five-part movie series. Five. We haven't even had the first one yet. Why would you tell us that? Like, why would you tell us that if you watch this one, you're only getting one-fifth of the story? Like, mm -hmm. don't do that. Let people get invested first and then tell them, hey, there's going to be all of these other things that you can be interested in. And I think they announced it because they they also told people that it's going to start including some of the stuff with Grindelwald and Dumbledore from yes. earlier in their life because obviously this is way before Harry Potter by like 60 years something 70, like that 70 I think is I th I what I Harry heard Potter, oh but... yeah if Harry Potter is early 90s then yeah like 70 years um and because of that they needed to extend it out from the trilogy that they had at that point to now five movies so mm -hmm. I think, if anything, this first one is going to stand on its own the most because at some point it was supposed to be its own movie without others <laughs> right. attached. But now I'm worried. I'm worried that they're 
they're getting too grandiose too early right like Mm -hmm. like dc kind of like the mc (laughs) like okay to 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 tangent here for a second the mcu kind of evolved organically from iron man right and then they started tying in all of these other movie properties and now it's very overseen and produced and things but it, it didn't start out that way it just kind of started out and grew from what it grew from dc saw the success that they had and they said we need one of those universes too let's just start from scratch and try to produce and overproduce and over analyze and mess with this universe as we create it. And it has not worked out well for them. And it has not. I'm afraid that's what's going to happen with these. That's, that's a big fear of mine too, that, that they have overextended themselves before seeing what works and what doesn't, that they did that with the Hobbit as well. And we see what happened. They did it with the hunger games and extended Mockingjay into two parts. And, I don't know about a lot of other people, but I feel as though the I know that the people around me just lost interest after the first Mockingjay that I still haven't even seen the second half of it. And I know a few people who are around me, my my Hunger Games friends, they didn't watch it either, that this is the same thing. And even DC is pulled back that Justice League is no longer going to be a two parter like they announced that it was supposed to go toe to toe with the Avengers Infinity War. Now it's only one movie. So because what was it because batman because batman versus superman did so poorly i do 100 percent agree with you about young dumbledore and grindelwald that i'm super excited to see them because dumbledore and grindelwald as young men could be a unifying force to make this feel i don't even know how to say it they could be this just unifying force for the universe i suppose to make it feel like harry potter in a completely different setting to make people like me buy in yeah we'll have to wait and kind of see what happens the other thing i'm excited to see um the grindelwald that they announced is johnny depp which could be very good oh god no do you not like johnny depp i i feel like he's really good in some roles and other roles it's like oh yep it's johnny depp again i like johnny depp when he is playing johnny depp that when he's doing a normal just everyday kind of character like he does in donnie brasco have you ever seen donnie brasco i have not it's brilliant like johnny depp is at his best when he's doing roles like that but when he's doing these like really weird you know jack sparrow mad hatter like tim burton roles i hate him he is hard for me to watch because it is so acting that that it is so put on that i'm really hoping that he is just a dude he is just this wizard you know going about his day being this kind of you know being Grindelwald, not being Johnny Depp being Grindelwald. Yeah, I mean, and there's nothing we can do except wait and see at this point. But wait and see on it. So, okay, well, it's it's interesting. We kind of have the same view of the Harry Potter like books and that we like them and the movies are a mixed bag. But then after that, you and I have very different views on the rest of the universe. So this ended up being more in-depth than I thought, which is actually a good thing. Um, yeah. It's probably time for Geeky Offer of the Week. You have something, right? Uh, yeah, the Geeky Offer of the Week this week is going to be Gamefly because we have it. Um, if you guys, I'm going to be doing this really soon. And I know Void has been doing this for a long time. You've heard us talk about this. Um, Gamefly is a rental, a rental service 
service uh, that you can do through subscriptions online where you get sent video games and you can try out and you can buy if you really, really like them. So I'm going to be doing this for some 3DS games over Christmas, I believe, uh, to be able to play Zelda Link Between Worlds and Kirby Planet Robobot, I think is the name of it, and maybe one of the Yoshi games. I can't remember the name of it on the 3DS, but I'm super excited to try this service because I keep hearing so many wonderful things about Void, and we would like you guys to be able to help support the podcast and get a free month of Gamefly to try out some uh, free video games. Who doesn't love free video games? So if you would take your handy-dandy web browser over to GameflyOffer.com slash geek and get yourself a Gamefly subscription for free, and uh, you would be helping us out a bunch, and we'd really appreciate it. That actually ties into my Weekly Geekery. Um, If you don't know Weekly Geekery, it's what we share, what we've been geeking out about this week. Um, I... I'm almost done with my Gamefly subscription. So I kind of told you like guys this. Like done, done when for I, a while? Yeah. So when I started, I said that there were all of these, like, not quite AAA games, or some of them are AAA that I just wasn't as interested in, but a lot of them are almost like B-tier games in my mind. And right. they had just built up over the last, like, three years, three or four years. I don't know. I, you know, I wouldn't pick up games I wasn't super excited for ever since having my kids because time is at a premium when you're a parent. And basically, I wanted to just power through all of these games games from the last like three or four years that I never wanted to buy and so I got Gamefly and I've been just flying through them right they come to me I play them for a day or two and then I send them all back and it's worked out really well so I actually I had the last one that was coming out for fall releases came to me over this weekend I played it I sent it back so I'm about ready to cancel my Gamefly subscription and then let it build up for another like six months or a year and then get it for a few months again and binge so I played Dishonored 2, which is fine. It's it's kind of a cool <laughs> stealth first-person game. It's not that different from the first game. Like I liked Dishonored, and I was hoping that I don't I don't know what I was hoping. I thought this one might be more or different enough to really grab me, and it didn't. Yeah. Uh, part of it is also just the setting was very like grim and gritty, and I didn't want to spend a ton of time in that world right now at this moment um right before like (laughs) i wonder why yeah but i mean also just like the winter is coming like the sun is going down a lot earlier it's like all the you know seasonal stuff i just don't want to be in a grim gritty dark world right now so i kind of made a mental note for dishonored 2 that when i am in the mood for a first person stealth game it's going to be a really good one to come back to but i'm just not in the mood for it right now so i sent that back to gamefly and i'm gonna wrap up my subscription and then like marvel unlimited i'm just gonna kind of like let the backlog build up up until it gets to a point where it feels like okay it's time to jump back in for a month or two and i think that's the way i'm going to use gamefly from now on just grab it for a couple months cancel it wait a while grab it for a couple months so we'll see how that ends up working out in the end and you know you speaking of marvel unlimited i saw it this week and wanted to tell everybody about it that for right now that this is the middle of november in 2016 so if you're listening to this as it comes out you can actually get half off on marvel unlimited and this isn't you know anything for us i just wanted to let you guys know about it because we do subscribe every so often on marvel unlimited both void and me that we that you can get it for $60 a year which is $5 a month if you can do math but that's half the normal price so if you're the kind of person who wants this kind of thing to catch up on back issues of Marvel Comics right now is the best time I'm thinking it may end at some point within the next couple of weeks before the end of November so you should definitely check that out and see what I'll post the promo code in the show notes but you guys should 
definitely check out Marvel Unlimited if you haven't done that yet. So yeah, that's yeah. a that's a really cool geeky thing that y'all should get in on. Yeah, every couple months they do some kind of really good promotion. So usually I yep. wait till my backlog is built up and then I wait until they do their next promo and then I'll pick it up for mm-hmm. a month or whatever their discount is for. And I usually do it for when they have free months around their new they're, they're this time it's a Doctor Strange promo where they're doing it for half off for a year, but there's usually a free month that you can get every so often and I'll do that and catch up on my backlog and i expect there to be one in december probably or maybe at the end of december for a new year kind of thing get a free month for the new year and then stay with us because we want your money yeah yeah it's good to keep your eye on that if you like comics at all um speaking of comics though you had didn't you watch supergirl this week i did and i did not expect to like it as much as i did have you seen any of it um i tried to watch the first season i think i watched about three episodes and i just i couldn't it wasn't a show that clicked with me at all okay so i'm gonna ask you why because i watched the pilot when they actually leaked it online i downloaded it whenever it leaked and we watched it and i liked it well enough it was pretty good but i didn't care a lot when it came on on tv when it was airing i was just like eh, whatever jennifer was like i want to watch it but you know we'll watch it when it gets on netflix and so she started watching it recently and i did the same thing as you i watched bits and pieces of it with her and it just wasn't something i cared about at all and i want to know why you didn't so that i can tell you why i didn't um i don't remember i just got bored like it didn't something about it just didn't work for me it's been too long i can't put my finger on it i I want to say it was something with like her power set i felt like she should have been better at solving problems there's something with that superman power set like you can do anything and every week it seems like your powers scale exactly to what your enemy's power level is and that really bugs me because it doesn't make any sense even Mm. though i can suspend disbelief for a lot of superheroes uh just superman and i I, by extension supergirl in particular that bugs me about it the other thing was the characters i just didn't like them all that much and that was probably the biggest part of it i didn't care about the characters it felt a little bit too um comic bookie cwe cwe yeah does that make sense I totally get it because that was what put me off of the first of the season too. I came in later though while Jennifer was watching an episode and it was probably around episode eight or so, maybe episode nine-ish that I came in and just sat down on the couch, started messing around on my phone while it was going on. And I realized that the characters that I thought were kind of bland and like, I don't remember any of these people's names that... I started recognizing that they had relationships and that they had already grown and changed by being around and that the whole thing with Kara, who Supergirl, was that the power set that she was getting wasn't always what was needed to save the day, that she would get like she would get attacked and she wouldn't be able to handle it. And so her friends were brought in and there have been some really poignant moments during this that it never stopped feeling CW. I mean, that's why the CW picked it up for season two, but it got really good. Like, I started really caring about these people and their relationships that it never lost that that kind of fun lightheartedness 
that it started out with, but it found its footing way more in terms of the personal relationships. And that's what pushed me through when, especially when they introduced Martian Manhunter and did it pretty well. And season two was actually handling a few issues really, really well that I am I've seen them handling like sexual coming out, like characters dealing with their sexuality in other shows a hundred times worse than they're handling something on this one. So I think that if you want to give it a shot, if not, I completely understand because I wasn't going to until she started it, but I have really enjoyed Supergirl. And honestly, it put me back in a comic book mood where I started rewatching. I started continuing on with Daredevil Ooh, because you didn't of tell it. me about this. I'm more interested in hearing about that because I don't I don't think I'm going to go back to Supergirl. Um, CW shows don't really work for me. I was really surprised. The Flash season one resonated with me, and I love that season. And then everything after season one has felt more and more and more CW-ish. Okay. I just don't like that style of show at all. Okay, then go and watch one episode of Supergirl. There is a Flash crossover in season one. I watched that, that one. Is, I saw that one. Did you? Yeah, it did was. Did you like it? I liked the Flash part of it. Okay, if you didn't like the Supergirl part, then you won't like the rest of it. But that was probably my favorite episode of the season. So if you liked it, yeah, you'd probably like the rest of the show. If you didn't like the Supergirl part, yeah, not for you. No, I, okay, that's good. That's what I needed. Now I know it's not for me. But yeah, tell me, you, you got back to Daredevil. You're in season one, right? I'm still on season one. I'm on episode nine now, I believe, and I'm invested. A couple of things happened at this point to make me really care about the the world, and I hate that it took this long to make me want to watch more. Yes. That I think that it had too much of a slow start setting everything up, that it was repeating too much yes. going in. Yes. That with, no, it's just uh, nobody ever says this, and I completely agree with you. Yes. And, and I, I stopped watching it, like, what is it now, four times I've stopped watching this, and I picked it up because I watched Supergirl. Jennifer and I finished Supergirl, and I'm like... I want to watch more, but she's. we'll probably watch The Flash, Legends of Tomorrow, and Arrow again together because of how much we both really like Supergirl. So Daredevil's the only one that I could really binge on my own. And whenever Stick was introduced, and the end of, I want to say it was episode seven, maybe? It was, I think it was episode seven, when Stick... And they were talking, Black Sky was introduced and Stick got, like, there was some guy on a mat with scars all over his back. I want to know more. And this is the first time where they start bringing in more than just the organized crime. When they start bringing in different parts of Daredevil, when they brought in Stick and they did all of this, that I'm really legitimately curious on where they're going with the season for the first time. And the stuff that happened at the end of episode eight... I don't know what they're going to be doing with it. They've surprised me. They did flashbacks for Wilson. They had him as a kid and showing what made him what he is today that I'm really curious on because I love how they do it. And I've heard that it's a uh, more of an origin story for the Kingpin than it is for Daredevil himself, that it's really telling his story over Matt's. And I can totally see that with the flashback that they started halfway through. And I really wish they had had a 10 episode season where they would have just skipped like the first three episodes outside of a few scenes for Daredevil. Yep. I feel the same way. I think I told you when I finished it that Daredevil season one, I was glad I had watched it, but I don't think I would ever rewatch it. And I have yeah, exactly. trouble recommending it to people because it feels like 
like super long drawn out origin stories which i don't like all that much to begin with and then it's not just daredevil's origin it's also kingpin's origin and there are so many flashbacks in that season like it feels like half the season is done in flashbacks which i just i hate that and it's not done in a in flashbacks like it is on arrow where it's part of the structure of the show to have these parallel narratives that that is how they've made that show so it's easy to reconcile that's how you're watching it with this one sometimes it takes you completely out of what's going on and the only ones i've really truly enjoyed have been the kingpins yeah and that was in episode eight yeah his are more interesting than matt's are but by the time you get to the end of the season it feels like oh okay we've established a lot and now season two can be really good and i liked Mm -hmm. season two so much more than season one I look really forward to seeing it based on how well they've done midway through season one. Cool. Okay, so for me, the other thing I wanted to talk about was I tried to get an NES classic, and I told Beige about all the places I checked and how hard I tried. <laughs> um, I, Nintendo totally messed this up. They so underestimated demand for the NES classic systems that it sold out everywhere instantly. Like, if you weren't in line hours before physical retail stores opened up, there was no way to get this. And they didn't do pre-orders anywhere. Like, Nintendo wouldn't let companies pre-order this. And I didn't know that. Yeah, I would have. Because, okay, I find it just dumb that you can pre-order every game that has no supply issue, right? Like, you can pre-order everything now. All of these games where you're never going to have trouble finding them on day one. Or you yeah. can download them digitally. Or... Like you can walk into any retail store on day one of a game launching and just pick it up. So there's no reason Mm -hmm. to pre-order unless there's really some pre-order bonus that you absolutely have to have. And that's almost never the case. It's usually more of a, "Eh, yeah, okay, that's a nice to have, right? Yeah, that's cool. I'll get Um, that. But hardware is where pre-orders make sense because hardware, you can't just download it, right? And there's actual scarcity when it comes out. And Nintendo announced this in July, They should have let all of the retailers open up pre-orders on that day because they told exactly what it was, exactly Mm -hmm. what was included, and exactly what the price was. Like, there were no mysteries there to stop retailers from taking pre-orders. You could have let retailers take pre-orders and then have four months to ramp up supply to meet the demand for all of those, and they didn't. And now, all of these people out there like me can't get one. And you could pay $1,000 on eBay. You can. Most of the ones on eBay are going for like two to three hundred dollars, which is already yeah. way too much money. But some people have them Entirely listed. Too much. Yeah, some people have them listed for like nine hundred dollars or a thousand dollars. And um, I mean, I know, I know that eventually supply will catch up, but that doesn't mean that it sucked any less when I went to get one and I couldn't. You know, and it's just sad. Like it's such a cute little perfect 30 game console and it has nostalgia i mean it's like it's a nostalgia box right and i don't know how they could have underestimated demand so badly so the thing is they're either i mean i saw an article about it that i mostly agreed with there are parts that i don't but it seems like they're either incompetent with their supply and demand or they are using this as a marketing ploy and putting out so few consoles that they're going to drum up a bunch of people like me who are complaining about it and oh i can't get them because they're such a hot property and they're going to get more free publicity for it which either way that sucks as someone who really likes nintendo stuff 
and I just want to be able to play it, right? Yeah, I mean, I think it was the I think I sent you a text message about this when you said you couldn't get it when we were talking about it where it feels like after the Switch was received so poorly among most people, among a lot of people and their stock dropped, which is still ridiculous to me, but they that this is the kind of thing where to me it feels like Oh, look, people actually do want our stuff. See, guys, you know, we sold out that the, that the Switch is going to be great. Just, just just you wait. Just you wait. And it's, it just feels petty almost because they knew people wanted this. There was so much no, hype but what beforehand. If they didn't, what if they didn't know? What if they are really that incompetent when it comes to the demand for their products? That worries me just as much as this being a marketing ploy because it's very possible that Nintendo doesn't understand the power of their own nostalgia because they've never actually used it effectively. Like That's true. They've never done virtual console in ways that they could have that would have made it a gigantic success. And Yeah, that's this, very true. This is the first direct appeal to nostalgia in actual video game form and not some other like tangential property that they've ever done, okay? And I know yeah. they've done other ones like Virtual Console, but they don't promote them. And it's not something that you can go and just pick up at the store and have nostalgia in your hand. This is the first yeah. time they've done that. And if they really don't understand the power of the nostalgia for Nintendo, that's that's worrying. Because they could capitalize on this, and it could be not only a huge retail success for them, it could be fantastic for people like you and me who want to recapture yeah. parts of our childhood. Like, I really want a mini Super Nintendo. Like, if Yeah, the, absolutely. That's the one I want more than anything. They need to take this idea and then apply it to the next generation up, and they will kill it at retail. Like, it'll be so much more than they're going to get with this one, which is already mm -hmm. looking like a hot property. And it, it worries me for the Switch, too. Like, if they miss judge demand for their product this much what if the nintendo switch comes out and there's just not enough of them out there because uh -huh. they're gun shy now after the wii and the wii u because both of those they they didn't estimate correctly right the wii they didn't know that it was going to be this gigantic success and they had supply issues for like two years after that console came out they could not yep. keep it in stores and then the wii u they couldn't get rid of them like they couldn't they sell those. Can't. they still can't sell those things and I just don't know what Nintendo is doing, but I love Nintendo games and I want to play them. So whenever I can get my hands on the NES classic, I'm going to, and I'm still super excited for the switch, but it was just, it was this little, it, it was most of my morning on Friday that I spent with this. And so I was just kind of standing in lines trying to get it while thinking about it and talking to other people around me and connecting, which was really cool. But it yeah. just made me start thinking about what is Nintendo doing? Like, do they really not know? And I think that's an interesting thought. That is, you're right, given how everything has been going lately. And I never thought about the virtual console that way, but you're absolutely right. It's it's always felt as though it's a, an afterthought that they just do this stuff because it's just there's no rhyme or reason to what they release and how they release it. Yeah, yeah. It's just it's tacked on and it's cool. And I like the virtual console, but it's never been a focus. They could have taken virtual console and like ported it to all of the systems and made it oh, a yeah. subscription service. Do you know how many people would pay for that? If you could play virtual console Nintendo games, which would include like their whole backlog that's not mm -hmm. current gen. If you could play all those games on PlayStation and Xbox and PC, like and just They'd make 
Yeah, you charge people like 10 bucks a month. So much. They would make so much money. Like, it would be a subscription. Like, you wouldn't even have to own it. People would pay for that. No question. They would make hundreds of millions of dollars. Oh, yeah. Yeah, easily. So those are my Nintendo thoughts for the week. I will tell you guys whenever I do get one because I'm going to keep watching and I will get one eventually. I guarantee it. The other thing I tried this week was um, Skyrim Special Edition, which I got for free because if you own it on Steam, Mm -hmm. the original one, you got the Special Edition for free, which was pretty cool. And I just haven't installed it yet. Yeah. So I went back and um, the first night back to it, I was like, oh, yeah, this game's awesome. I forgot how how many things there are and how cool it is and how nice it is to have this like fleshed out open world. And I played for, I don't know, five hours maybe that night. And then um, I came back to it the second day and it hit me that this is just Skyrim still. And I've already put hundreds of hours into this game and I probably don't need to put any more time into it. So after two nights, I was done with it. Which is, which is fine because you've already got your time with it. That the special edition is for people who either are still playing Skyrim or they haven't experienced it at all. And this is a supposedly much better edition of it to introduce themselves to. Right. And that's the thing is like I didn't pay for this one. I got it for free and I already got my money's worth when I played through Skyrim the first time whenever it came mm-hmm. out like 2010 or something. I don't remember when it came out. It's been a while. 2011 maybe? Maybe. I don't know. I it, don't remember. Something like that. Um. So yeah, Skyrim Special Edition is more Skyrim and you will know if that appeals to you or not. <laughs> This is true. And there's not any extras with it that if there had been a separate DLC, then I mean, I haven't played through any of the DLC that I've thought about going back and doing this for like Dawn Guard and stuff like that that I haven't done. Yep. Yep. Okay. well, I think that will do it for this week. And we're actually recording next week's episode right now, right after we wrap this up, because you guys sent us a bunch of questions. We're going to answer them and then schedule it out ahead of time with the magic of scheduling so that we have Thanksgiving week off. Internet. But as always, you can write to us with comments, suggestions or feedback. Our email address is geek to geekcast at gmail dot com or reach us on Twitter at geek to geekcast. We also have longer discussion threads on the subreddit or feel free to jump in there and create your own discussion thread. We love jumping in and talking to you guys. Um, it's reddit.com slash r slash geek to geekcast. And if you want to get email updates about whenever any of our network's podcasts go live, you can sign up at geek to geekcast.net and just tell us which shows you want updates about. And you'll get the show notes and download links directly in your inbox. I blog almost daily at agreenmushroom.com and you can find me at grn mushroom that's green mushroom without the e's on twitter and i'm on twitter as at professor beege that's beege with two e's and i host the geek fitness health hacks podcast and blog at geekfitness.net we've been void and beege with your geek to geek podcast that'll do it for this week see you next week geeks goodbye geeks goodbye geeks